Welcome back, lovely people. Thank you so much for joining me. You may hear some um, low noise in the background. There's a lot of work being done in the street outside of our apartment today, but I don't think that it should interfere with the recording too much. But if you do happen to hear some machinery sounding background noises that's what's going on today we are going to be reading one chapter in a tree grows in brooklyn and that is chapter 38 just before christmas vacation ended francie told mama that she wasn't going back to school don't you like school mama asked Yes, I do, but I'm 14 now, and I can get my working papers easy. Why do you want to go to work? To help out. No, Francie. I want you to go back to school and graduate. It's only a few more months. June will be here before you know it. You can get your working papers for this summer. Maybe Neely, too. But you're both going back to high school in the fall. So forget working papers and go back to school. But mama, how will we get along till summer? We'll manage. Katie was not as confident as she sounded. She missed Johnny in more ways than one. Johnny had never worked steadily, but there had been the unexpected Saturday or Sunday night job with the $3 it brought in. Then, too, when things got too terrible, Johnny had had a way of pulling himself together for a little while to get them over the bad places. But now, there was no Johnny. Katie took stock. The rent was paid as long as she could keep those three tenements clean. There was a dollar and a half a week from Neely's paper route That would keep them in coal if they used fire only at night. But wait, 20 cents weekly insurance premium had to come out of that. Katie was insured for a dime a week and each of the children for a nickel. Well, a bit less coal and a little earlier to bed would take care of that. Clothes? Not to be thought of. Lucky Francie had those new shoes and Neely the suit. The big question then was food. Maybe Miss McGarrity would let her do the washing again. That would be a dollar a week. Then she'd get a few outside cleaning jobs. Yes, they'd get along somehow. They got through to the end of March. By that time, Katie was unwieldy. The baby was due in May. The ladies for whom she had worked The ladies for whom she worked winced and looked away as they saw her, big with child, standing at the ironing board in their kitchens, or saw her in an awkward, sprawling position on her hands and knees, scrubbing their floors. They had to help her out of pity. Soon, they realized that they were paying a cleaning woman and doing most of the work themselves anyhow. So, one after another, they told her they didn't need her anymore. A day came when Katie didn't have the 20 cents for the insurance collector. He was an old friend of the Romilly's, and he knew Katie's circumstances. I'd hate to see your policies lapse, Miss Nolan, especially after you kept them up all these years. You wouldn't lapse me just because I got behind a little in my payments. I wouldn't, but the company would. Look, why don't you cash in the children's policies? I didn't know you could do that. Few people know. They stop paying premiums and the company keeps mum. Time passes and the company just keeps the money already paid in. I'd lose my job if they knew I told you about this. But here's how I look at it. I insured your father and mother and all you Romilly girls and your husbands and children and I don't know but I carried so many messages back and forth among you about birth and sickness and death 
that I feel like I'm part of the family. We couldn't do without you, said Katie. Here's what you do, Miss Nolan. Cash in your children's policies, but keep your own. If anything happens to one of the children, God forbid, you could manage to get them buried. Whereas if something happened to you, also God forbid, they couldn't get you buried without insurance money. Now could they? No, they couldn't. I must keep my own policy up. I wouldn't want to be buried as a pauper in Potter's Field. That's something they could never rise above. Neither they, nor their children, nor their children's children. So I'll keep my policy and take your advice about the children's. Tell me what I have to do. The $25 that Katie got for the two policies kept them through until the end of April. In five more weeks, the ch- in five more weeks, the child would be born. In eight more weeks, Francie and Neely would graduate from grade school. There were those eight weeks to be gotten through somehow. The three Romley sisters sat around Katie's kitchen table in conference. I'd help if I could, said Evie, but you know Will's not been right since that horse kicked him. He's fresh to the boss and doesn't get along with the men, and it's gotten so that not a horse will go out with him. They put him on stable work, sweeping out manure and dumping broken bottles. They cut him to 18 a week, and that doesn't go far with three children. I'm looking for odd cleaning jobs myself. If you could think of some way, began Sissy. Or, if I could think of some way, began Sissy. No, said Katie firmly. You're doing enough by taking Mother to live with you. That's right, said Evie. Kate and I used to worry so about her living alone in one room and going out cleaning to make a few pennies. Mother's no expense and no trouble, said Sissy, and my John doesn't mind having her around. Of course, he only earns 20 a week, and now there's the baby. I wanted to get my old job back, but Mother's too old to take care of baby and the house. She's 83 now. I could work, but I'd have to hire somebody to look after Mother and the baby. If I had a job, I could help you out, Katie. You just can't do it, sissy. There's no way, said Katie. There's only one thing to do, said Evie. Take Francie out of school and let her get her working papers. But I want her to graduate. My children will be the first ones in the Nolan family to get diplomas. You can't eat a diploma, said Evie. Haven't you any men friends who could help you? asked Sissy. You're a very pretty woman, you know. Or will be, when she gets her shape back again, put in Evie. Katie thought briefly of Sergeant McShane. No, she said. I have no men friends. There's always been Johnny and no one else. I guess Evie's right then, decided Sissy. I hate to say it, but you've got to put Francie to work. Once she leaves grammar school without graduating, she'll never be able to get into high school, protested Katie. Well, sighed Evie, there's always the Catholic charities. When the time comes, said Katie quietly, that we have to take charity baskets, I'll plug up the doors and windows and wait until the children are sound asleep and then turn on every gas jet in the house. Don't talk like that, said Evie sharply. You want to live, don't you? Yes, but I want to live for something. I don't want to live to get charity food to give me enough strength to go back and get more charity food. Then it comes back to this again, said Evie. Francie's got to get out and work. It's got to be Francie because Neely is only 13 and they won't give him his working papers. Sissy put her hand on Katie's arm. It won't be so terrible. 
Francie's smart and reads a lot, and that girl will get herself educated somehow. Evie stood up. Look, we've got to go. She put a 50-cent piece on the table. Anticipating Katie's refusal, she spoke belligerently. And don't think that's a present. I expect to be paid back someday. Katie smiled. You needn't holler so. I don't mind taking money from my sister. Sissy took a shortcut. As she leaned over to kiss Katie's cheek in goodbye, she slipped a dollar bill in her apron pocket. If you need me, she said, send for me and I'll come, even if it's in the middle of the night. But send Neely. It's not safe for a girl to walk through those dark streets past the coal yards. Katie sat alone at the kitchen table far into the night. I need two months. Just two months, she thought. Dear God, give me two months. It's such a little time. By that time, my baby will be born and I'll be well again. By that time, the children will be graduated from public school. When I'm boss of my own mind and my own body, I don't need to ask you for anything. But now my body is boss over me and I've got to ask you for help. Just two months. Two months. She waited for that warm glow that meant that she had established communication with her God. There was no glow. She tried again. Holy Mary, Mother of Jesus, you know how it is. You had a child, Holy Mary. She waited. There was nothing. She placed Sissy's dollar and Evie's 50 cent piece on the table. That will get us through three more days, she thought. After that, not aware of what she did, she whispered, Johnny, wherever you are, pull yourself together just one more time. One more time. She waited again, and this time the glow came. And so, and it so happened that Johnny helped them. McGarrity, the saloon keeper, couldn't get Johnny out of his mind. Not that McGarrity's conscience bothered him, no, nothing like that. He didn't force men to come into his saloon. Aside from keeping the door hinges so well-oiled that the slightest touch made them swing open easily, he offered no more inducements than other saloon keepers. His free lunch was no better than theirs, and there was no beguiling entertainment other than that spontaneously contributed by his customers. No, it wasn't his conscience. He missed Johnny. That was it. And it wasn't the money either, because Johnny always owed him. He had liked having Johnny around because he gave class to the place. It was something all right to see that slender young fellow standing debonairly at the bar among the truck drivers and ditch diggers. Sure, admitted McGarrity, Johnny Nolan drank more than was good for him, but if he didn't get it here, he would have gotten it somewhere else. But he wasn't a rummy. He never got to cursing or brawling after he had a few drinks. Yes, decided McGarrity. Johnny had been all right. The thing that McGarrity missed was Johnny talking. How that fellow could talk, he thought. Why he'd tell me about those cotton fields down south or about the shores of Araby or sunny France just like he'd been there instead of getting the information out of those songs he knew. I sure like to hear him talk about those far-off places, he mused. But best of all, I like to hear him talk about his family. 
McGarity used to have a dream about a family. This dream family lived far away from the saloon, so far that he had to hop a trolley to get home in the early morning after he'd locked up the saloon. The gentle wife of his dreams waited up for him and had hot coffee and something nice to eat ready. After eating, they'd talk. Talk about other things than saloon. He had dream children, clean, pretty, smart children who were growing up sort of ashamed that their father ran a saloon. He was proud of their shame because it meant that he had the ability of begetting, begetting refined children. Well, that had been his dream of marriage. Then he had married May. She had been a curvy, sensuous girl with dark red hair and a wide mouth. But after a while of marriage, she turned into a stout, blousy woman known in Brooklyn as the saloon type. Married life had been fine for a year or two. Then McGarity woke up one morning and found that it was no good. May wouldn't change into his dream wife. She liked the saloon. She insisted that they rent rooms above it. She didn't want a house in Flushing. She didn't want to do housework. She liked to sit in the saloon's back room day and night and laugh and drink with the customers. And the children that May gave him ran the streets like hoodlums and bragged about their father owning a saloon. To his grievous disappointment, they were proud of it. He knew that May was unfaithful to him. He didn't care, so long as it didn't get around to the extent that men laughed at him behind his back. Jealousy had left him years ago when the physical desire for May left him. He gradually grew indifferent about sleeping with her or with any other woman. Somehow, good talking had gotten tied up with good sex in his mind. He wanted a woman to talk to, one to whom he could tell all of his thoughts, and he wanted her to talk to him warmly, wisely, and intimately. If he could find such a woman, he thought, his manhood would come back to him. In his dumb, fumbling way, he wanted union of mind and soul along with union of body. As the years passed, the need of talking intimately with a woman who was close to him became an obsession. In his business, he observed human nature and came to certain conclusions about it. The conclusions lacked wisdom and originality. In fact, they were tiresome, but they were important to McGarity because he had figured them out for himself. In the first years of marriage, he had tried to tell May about these conclusions, but all she said was, I can imagine. Sometimes she varied by saying, I can just imagine. Gradually then, because he could not share his inner life with her, he lost the power of being a husband to her, and she was unfaithful to him. McGarity was a man with a great sin on his soul. He hated his children. His daughter, Irene, was Francie's age. Irene was a pink-eyed girl, and her hair was of such a pale red that it too could be called pink. She was mean and stupid. She had been left back so many times that at 14 she was still in the sixth grade. His son, Jim, Jim, 10 years old, had no outstanding characteristics, except that his buttocks was always too fat for his breeches. McGarity had another dream. It was that May would come to him and confess that the children were not his. This dream made him happy. He felt that he could love those children if he knew that they were another man's. Then he could see their meanness and their stupidity objectively. Then he could pity them and help them. As long as the he knew they were his, he hated them 
because he saw all of his own and May's worst traits in them. In the eight years that Johnny had been patronizing McGarrity's saloon, he had spoken daily to McGarrity in praise of Katie and the children. McGarrity played a secret game during those eight years. He pretended that he was Johnny and that he, McGarrity, was talking was talking so about May and his children. Want to show you something, Johnny said once, proudly as he pulled a paper from his pocket. My little girl wrote this composition in school and got an A on it, and she's only ten years old. Listen, I'll read it to you. As Johnny read, McGarity pretended that it was his little girl who had written the story. Another day, Johnny brought in a pair of crudely made wood bookends and placed them on the bar with the flourish. Want to show you something, he said proudly. My boy, Neely, made these in school. My boy, Jimmy, made these in school, said McGarity proudly to himself as he examined the bookends. Another time, to start him talking, McGarity had asked, Think we'll get in the war, Johnny? Funny thing, Johnny had answered. Katie and I sat up till near morning talking about that very thing. I convinced her finally that Wilson will keep us out of it. How would it be, McGarity thought, if he and May sat up all night to talk about that? And how would it be if she said, You're right, Jim. But he didn't know how it would be because he knew that could never happen. So when Johnny died, McGarity lost his dreams. He tried to play the game by himself, but it didn't work out. He needed someone like Johnny to start him off. About the time that the three sisters sat in Katie's kitchen talking, McGarity got an idea. He had more money than he knew how to spend, and nothing else. Maybe through Johnny's children, he could buy the way of dreaming again. He suspected that Katie was hard up. Maybe he could scare up a little easy work for Johnny's kids to do up, to do after school. He'd be helping them out. God knows he could afford it, and maybe he'd get something in return. Maybe they would talk to him the way they must have talked to their father. He told May he was going to see Katie about some work for the children. May told him, cheerfully enough, that he'd be thrown out on his ear. McGarity didn't think he'd be thrown out on his ear. As he shaved for the visit, he recalled the day that Katie had come in to thank him for the wreath. After Johnny's funeral, Katie went around thanking each person who had sent flowers. She had walked straight through McGarity's front door, disdaining the deviousness of the side door marked Ladies' Entrance. Ignoring the staring men hanging on the bar, she had come straight to where McGarity was. Seeing her, he had tucked up one bottom end of his apron into the belt, signifying that he was off duty for the moment and had come from behind the bar to meet her. I came to thank you for the wreath, she said. Oh, that, he said, relieved. He thought she had come to bawl him out. It was thoughtful of you. I liked Johnny. I know. She put her hand out. He looked at it dumbly for a moment before he got the idea that she wanted him. She wanted to shake him by the hand. As he wrung her hand, he asked, No hard feelings? Why? She answered. Johnny was free, white, and over twenty-one. She had turned then and walked out of the saloon. No, decided McGarity. Such a woman wouldn't throw him out on his ear if he came with well-meant intentions. He sat ill at ease on one of the kitchen chairs talking to Katie. 
The children were supposed to be doing their homework, but Francie, head bent deceptively over her book, was listening to Mr. McGarrity. I talked it over with my missus, dreamed McGarrity, and she agreed with me that we could use your girl. No hard work, you understand, just making the beds and washing a few dishes. I could use the boy downstairs, peeling eggs and cutting cheese into hunks, you know, for the free lunch at night. He wouldn't be anywhere near the bar. He'd work in the back kitchen. It would be for an hour or so after school and half a day on Saturday. I'd pay each two dollars a week. Katie's heart jumped. Four dollars a week, she figured to herself, and a dollar and a half from the paper route. Both of them could stay in school. There'd be enough to eat. It would get us through. What do you say, Mrs. Nolan? He asked. It's up to the children, she answered. Well, he threw his voice in their direction. What do you say? Francie pretended to tear herself away from her book. What did you say? Would you like to help Mrs. McGarrity around the house? Yes, sir, said Francie. And you? He looked at Neely. Yes, sir, echoed the boy. That's settled. He returned to Katie. Of course, it's only temporary until we can get a regular woman to take over the house and kitchen work. I'd rather it was temporary anyhow, said Katie. You might be a little short. He worked his hand down into his pocket. So I'll pay the first week's salary in advance. No, Mr. McGarrity. If they earn the money, they'll have the privilege of collecting it and bringing it home themselves at the end of the week. All right. But instead of taking his hand from his pocket, he closed it over the thick roll of bills. He thought, I've got so much money that buys me nothing, and they haven't got anything. He had an idea. Mrs. Nolan, you know how Johnny and I done business. I gave him credit and he turned his tips over to me. Well, when he died, he was a little ahead. He took out the thick roll of bills. Francie's eyes popped when she saw all that money. McGarrity's idea was to say that Johnny was $12 ahead and to give Katie that sum. He looked at Katie as he took the rubber band off the money. Her eyes narrowed, and he changed his mind about the $12. He knew she'd never believe it. Of course, it isn't much, he said casually. Just $2, but I figure it belongs to you. He detached two bills and held them out to her. Katie shook her head. I know there is no money owing us. If you told the truth, you'd say that Johnny owed you. Ashamed at being caught, McGarrity put the thick roll back in his pocket where it felt uncomfortable against his thigh. But Mr. McGarrity, I do thank you for your kind intentions, Katie said. Her last words released McGarrity's tongue. He started to talk. He spoke of his boyhood in Ireland, of his mother and father and the many brothers and sisters. He spoke of his dream marriage. He told her everything that had been in his thoughts for years. He didn't run down his wife and children. He left them out of his story entirely. He told about Johnny, how Johnny had spoken daily of his wife and children. Take those curtains, McGarrity said, waving a thick hand at the half curtains made of yellow calico with a red rose design. Johnny told me how you ripped up an old dress of yours and made kitchen curtains out of it. He said you made the kitchen look fine, like the inside of a gypsy wagon. Francie, who had abandoned the pretense of study, picked up McGarrity's last two words. Gypsy wagon, she thought, looking at the curtains with new eyes. 
so Papa had said that. I didn't think he noticed the new curtains at the time. At least he didn't say anything. But he had noticed. He had said that nice thing about them to this man. Hearing Johnny spoken of so made Francie almost believe that he wasn't dead. So Papa had said things like this, like that, to this man. She stared at McGarity with new interest. He was a short, stocky man with thick hands, a short red neck, and thinning hair. Who'd ever guess, thought Francie, looking at the outside of him, that he was so different inside. McGarity talked for two hours without stopping. Katie listened intently. She was not listening to McGarity talking. She was listening to McGarity talking about Johnny. When he stopped for a second, she gave him little transitional replies such as, Yes? Or, Then what? Or, And then? When he fumbled for a word, she offered him one which he accepted gratefully. And as he talked, a remarkable thing happened. He felt his lost manhood stirring within him. It wasn't the physical fact of Katie in the room with him. Her body was swollen and distorted and he couldn't look at her without wincing inwardly. It wasn't the woman, it was the talking to her that was doing it. It grew dark in the room. McGarity stopped talking. He was hoarse and tired, but it was a new peaceful kind of tiredness. He thought reluctantly that he had to get back. The saloon would be filling up with men on their way home from work, stopping in for a pre-supper drink. He didn't like May behind the bar when a crowd of men were there. Excuse me. He got to his feet slowly. Miss Nolan, he said, fumbling with his brown derby. Could I come up here once in a while to talk? She shook her head slowly. Just to talk, he repeated pleadingly. No, Mr. McGarity. She said as gently as she could. He sighed and went away. Francie was glad to be kept so busy. Kept her from missing Papa too much. She and Neely got up at six in the morning and helped Mama with the cleaning for two hours before they got ready for school. Mama couldn't work hard now. Francie polished the brass bell plates in the three vestibules and cleaned each banister spoke with an oiled cloth. Neely swept out the cellars and swept down the carpeted stairs. Each of them got the filled ash cans up on the curb every day. It had been a problem because the two of them together couldn't so much as budge the heavy cans. Francie got the idea of tipping over the cans, dumping the ashes on the cellar floor, carrying the cans up to the curb, and then refilling them with coal buckets. It worked fine, even if it meant a lot of trips up and down the cellar. That left only the linoleum-laid halls for Mama to scrub. Three of the tenants offered to scrub their own hallways until after Katie had had her baby, and that helped a whole lot. After school, the children had to go to church for instruction, since both of them were being confirmed that spring. After instruction, they worked for McGarity. As he had promised, the work was easy. Francie made up four tumbled beds and washed a few breakfast dishes and swept the rooms. It took less than an hour. Neely had the same schedule as Francie, except that his paper route was added on. Sometimes he didn't get home for supper until 8 o'clock. He worked in the kitchen back of McGarity's saloon. His job was to take the shells off four dozen hard-boiled eggs cut hard cheese into inch cubes and stick a toothpick in each cube and slice big pickles lengthwise.
McGarity waited a few days until the children got used to working for him. Then he decided it was time to have them talk to him the way Johnny had. He went into the kitchen, sat down, and watched Neely working. He's the spitting image of his father, thought McGarity. He waited a long time letting the boy get used to him there, then he cleared his throat. <clears throat> Make any wooden bookends lately? he asked. No, no, sir, stammered Neely, startled at the odd question. McGarity waited. Why didn't the boy start talking? Neely shelled eggs faster. McGarity tried again. Think Wilson will keep us out of the war? I don't know, said Neely. <laughs> McGarity waited a long time. Neely thought he was checking up on the way he worked. Anxious to please, the boy worked so fast that he was finished ahead of time. He placed the last shelled egg in the glass bowl and looked up. Ah, now he's going to talk to me, thought McGarity. Is that all you want done? asked Neely. That's all? Still, McGarity waited. I guess I'll go, then, ventured Neely. All right, son, sighed McGarity. He watched the boy walk out of the back door. If he'd only turn around and say something. Something personal, thought McGarity but Neely didn't turn around. McGarity tried Francie the next day. He came upstairs to the flat, sat down, and said nothing. Francie got a little frightened and started sweeping towards the door. If he comes at me, she thought, I can run out. McGarity sat quiet for a long time, thinking he was getting her used to him. He didn't know he was frightening her. Write any grade A number one compositions lately? He asked. No, sir. He waited a while. Do you think we'll get into this war? I, I, I don't know. She edged closer to the door. He thought, I'm scaring her. She thinks I'm like that fellow in the hallway. Aloud, he said. Don't be afraid. I'm going. You can lock the door after me if you want. Yes, sir, she said. After he had gone, Francie thought, I guess he only wanted to talk, but I have nothing to say to him. May McGarity came up once. Francie was on her knees trying to poke out some dirt from behind the water pipes under the sink. May told her to get up and forget it. Lord love you, child, she said. Don't be killing yourself working. This flat will be standing here long after you and I are dead and gone. She took a mound of rosy jello out of the icebox, cut it in half, and slid a portion on another plate. She garnished it liberally with whipped cream, plunked two spoons on the table, sat down and indicated that Francie do the same. I'm not hungry, lied Francie. Eat it anyhow to be sociable, May said. It was the first time Francie had ever eaten jello and whipped cream. It was so good, she had to remember her manners and not gobble it down. As she ate, she thought, why, Miss McGarity's all right. Mr. McGarity's all right, too. Only, I guess they aren't all right to each other. May and Jim McGarity sat alone at a little round table in back of the saloon, eating their usual hurried and silent supper. Unexpectedly, she placed her hand on his arm. He trembled at the unexpected touch. His small, light eyes looked into her large, mahogany-colored ones and saw pity in them. It won't work out, Jim, she said gently. Excitement churned up in him. She knows, he thought. Why? Why? 
she understands. There's an old saying, May continued, money won't buy everything. I know, he said. I'll let them go then. Wait until a couple of weeks after her kid is born. Give them a show. She got up and walked out of the bar. McGarity sat there, torn apart by his feelings. We held a conversation, he thought in wonder. No, ma- no names were mentioned, and nothing was said exactly in the words. But she knew what I was thinking, and I knew what she was thinking. He hurried after his wife. He wanted to hold on to that understanding. He saw May standing at the end of the bar. A husky teamster had his arm around her waist and was whispering something in her ear. She had her hand over her mouth to hold back her laughter. As McGarity came in, the teamster removed his hand sheepishly and moved down to stand with a group of men. As McGarity went behind the bar, he looked into his wife's eyes. They were blank and had no understanding in them. McGarity's face fell into the old lines of grievous disappointment as he started his evening's work. Mary Romilly was getting old. She was no longer able to go about Brooklyn alone. She had a longing to see Katie before her confinement, so she gave the insurance collector a message. When a woman gives birth, she told him, death holds her hand for a little while. Sometimes he doesn't let go. Tell my youngest daughter that I would see her once more before her time comes. The collector gave the message. The following Sunday, Katie went over to see her mother, taking Francie with her. Neely begged off, saying he had promised to pitch for the ten Ikes who were trying to get up a ball game in the lots. Sissy's kitchen was big and warm and sunny and spotlessly clean. Grandma Mary Romilly was sitting by the stove in a low rocker. It was the only piece of furniture she had brought from Austria, and it had stood by the hearth in her family's hut for more than a hundred years. Sissy's husband sat by the window, holding the baby while he gave it its bottle. After Mary and Sissy had been greeted, Francie and Katie greeted him. Hello, John, said Katie. Hello, Kate, he answered. Hello, Uncle John. Hello, Francie. He never said another word during the entire visit. Francie stared at him, wondering about him. The family regarded him as temporary, as they had regarded Sissy's other husbands and lovers. Francie wondered whether he himself felt temporary. His real name was Steve, but Sissy always referred to him as My John. And when the family spoke of him, they called him the John or Sissy's John. Francie wondered whether the men in the publishing house where he worked called him John too. Did he ever protest? Did he ever say, Look here, Sissy, my name is Steve and not John, and tell your sisters to call me Steve too. Sissy, you're getting stouter, Mama was saying. It's natural for a woman to put on a little weight after she's had a baby, said Sissy with a straight face. She smiled at Francie. Would you like to hold the baby, Francie? Oh, yes. Without a word, Sissy's tall husband got up, gave over the baby and its bottle to Francie, and still without a word, walked out of the room. No one commented on his going. Francie sat in his vacated chair. She had never held a baby in her arms before. She touched the baby's soft round cheek with her fingers as she had seen Joanna do. A thrill started at her fingertips, went up her arm and through her entire body. When I get big, she decided, 
I'll always have a new baby in the house. While she held the baby, she listened to Mama and Grandma talking and watched Sissy making up a month's supply of noodles. Sissy took a ball of stiff yellow dough, rolled it flat with the rolling pin, then rolled the flat dough up like a jelly roll. With a sharp knife, she cut the roll into paper-thin strips, unwound the strips, and hung them on a rack made of slender dowel sticks, which stood above the kitchen stove. This was to dry out the noodles. Francie felt that there was something different about Sissy. She wasn't the old Aunt Sissy. It wasn't that she was a bit less slender than usual. The being different was something that did not have to do with the way she looked. Francie puzzled over it. Mary Romley wanted to hear every word of news and Katie told her everything, starting from the end and working back. First, she told of the children working for McGarrity's and how the money had money they brought in was keeping them. Then she went back to the day McGarrity had sat in her kitchen and talked about Johnny. She ended up with saying, I tell you, mother, if McGarrity hadn't come along when he did, I don't know what would have happened. I was so low that just a few nights before that, I prayed to Johnny to help me. That was foolish, I know. Not foolish, said Mary. He heard you, and he helped you. A ghost can't help anyone, mother, said Sissy. Ghosts are not always those who pass through closed doors, said Mary Romilly. Katie has told how her husband used to talk to this saloon man. In all those years of the talking, Hiani gave away pieces of himself to this man. When Katie called on her man for help, the pieces of him came together in this man, and it was Hiani within the saloon man's soul that heard and came to her help. Francie turned it over in her mind. If that is so, she thought, then Mr. McGarrity gave us back all those pieces of Papa when he talked so long about him. There is nothing of Papa in him now. Maybe that's why we can't talk to him the way he wants us to. When it was time to leave, Sissy gave Katie a shoebox full of noodles to take home. As Francie kissed her grandmother and goodbye, Mary Romilly held her close and whispered in her own language, In the month to come, give unto thy mother more than obedience and respect. She will have great need of love and understanding. Francie didn't understand a word of what her grandmother had said, but she answered, Yes, Grandma. Going home in the trolley, Francie held the shoebox in her lap because Mama had no lap now. Francie thought deep thoughts during the ride. If what Grandma Mary Romilly said is true, then it must be that no one ever dies, really. Papa is gone, but he's still here in many ways. He's here in Neely, who looks just like him, and in Mama, who knew him so long. He's here in his mother, who began him, and who is still living. Maybe I will have a boy someday who looks like Papa and has all of Papa's good without the drinking. And that boy will have a boy, and that boy will have a boy. It might be there is no real death. Her thoughts went to McGarity. No one would ever believe there was any part of Papa in him. She thought of Miss McGarity and how she had made it easy for her to sit down and eat that jello. Something clicked in Francie's mind. She knew, all of a sudden, what was different about Sissy. She spoke to her mother. Aunt Sissy doesn't use that strong, sweet perfume anymore, does she, Mama? No, she doesn't have to anymore. Why? She's got her baby now, and a man to look after her and the baby. 
Francie wanted to ask more questions, but Mama had her eyes closed and was leaning her head back against the seat. She looked white and tired, and Francie decided not to bother her anymore. She'd have to figure it out for herself. It must be, she thought, that this using strong perfume is tied up somehow with a woman wanting a baby and wanting to find a man who can give her a baby and look after it and her too. She put that nugget of knowledge away with all the others that she was continually collecting. Francie was beginning to get a headache. She didn't know whether it was caused by the excitement of holding the baby, the bouncing trolley car, the idea of Papa, or the discovery about Sissy's perfume. Maybe it was because she was getting up so early in the mornings now and being so busy all day. Maybe it was because it was the time in the month when she could look for a headache anyhow. Well, Francie decided, I guess the thing that is giving me this headache is life and nothing else but. Don't be silly, said Mama quietly, still leaning back with her eyes closed. Aunt Sissy's kitchen was too hot. I have a headache myself. Francie jumped. Was it getting so that Mama could look right into her mind even with her eyes closed? Then she remembered that she had forgotten she was thinking and had said that last thought about life out loud. She laughed for the first time since Papa had died, and Mama opened her eyes and smiled.